Amen. So I got a question tonight as we kick off Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. So looking for, um, thank you, thank you. Looking for uh, some, some answers here uh, and, and answers to this question. So how has God, how has God used suffering as a tool for perseverance, for character, or for hope in your life specifically? How has God used suffering as a tool for perseverance, for character, or for hope in your life personally? Yeah, go ahead. So God allowed you, um, through divorce and through the loss of custody of your kids, to, to learn or develop a deeper perseverance in life. What else? Yeah, go ahead. Your idol, okay. So the loss of someone important to you uh, showed you that relationships were an idol, an idol in your life. What else? How has God used suffering in your life? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so through, through suffering, your flesh has been put in its place by God. Does anybody else want to add to anything that's been said before we move on? Yeah, sure, the spirit within us perseveres as we press in to God in our suffering. It was Martin, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, through God's, God's provision uh, in times of hardship, financially, in our marriages. And it was Martin Luther uh, who said that in the entire Bible, uh, there is hardly another chapter which could equal the triumphant text of Romans chapter 5. Of Romans chapter 5. The reason he said this uh, was because Martin Luther went through much suffering. And there's many things talked about here in this chapter uh, that I believe uh, Martin Luther uh, wanted uh, believers uh, to understand and know. So if you would turn with me to Romans chapter 5, we're going to look at what happens uh, tonight. We're going to cover a lot of topics. We're going to cover the topics of, of the benefits of believing um, in God. What are the benefits of salvation? We're going we're gonna to look at what comes because of suffering uh, but then there's really going to be a challenge about something at the end of this chapter 
for us. And so we're going to kick off in verse number one, verse number one, and it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it says, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now we're going to stop right there uh, for tonight at this moment. So to this point in the book of Romans, Paul has convinced his readers that the only way of salvation is to be justified by grace through faith. Now, though, Paul is going to tell us what are the practical benefits of salvation. What are the practical benefits of justification for one's life? And and explaining that uh, brings about an even more interesting idea here in Scripture. And so when Paul talked about um, justification, he was talking about something uh, of a legal decree so to speak. Uh, If we go back um, into Romans chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through Romans chapter 3 and verse 20, uh, we see uh, that we are guilty before the court uh, of God's law. We're guilty before God's glory, and we're guilty to our conscience or in man's conscience. And so Paul explained how because of what Jesus did, the righteousness of God is given to anyone who believes. These are all things that we've covered over the first four chapters. And he talked about how the guilty sentence uh, that was ours is transformed to a sentence of justification through Christ. That's what we've learned up to, in a nutshell, explanation. That's what the first four chapters of Romans have been about. And so Paul says... So, peace with God comes through Jesus Christ, or through our Lord Jesus Christ, depending on the version that you have. And so he wants us to know right out of the gate that the very first benefit of justification is peace with God. The very first benefit, and it's not going to hit the screens, uh, the very first benefit is peace with God. Why, though? Why is that the first benefit? Well, because the price has been paid in full for your sin and my sin. That's why it's a benefit. It was done by the work of Jesus on the cross, and so God's justice towards us has been eternally satisfied through Christ. You guys tracking with me so far? Are you just following all? Oh, great. Now, I want to I just stop and, and linger here on what Paul said, though, because Paul said this was peace with God. This is not the peace of God. You guys following what I'm saying? He says this is peace with God. This is not the peace of God. So if we were to go uh, into Philippians chapter 4, verse number 7, he says that we can be given the peace of God or, or the peace that passes all understanding will guard our heart and mind through Christ Jesus. That is the peace of God. What Paul is saying here is that you have peace with God, meaning, meaning that the battle between God and my sinfulness is finished. You guys got that? Now, that's crucial to our understanding uh, of our relationship with, with Christ. Because of salvation, 
My, my, myself is no longer at war with God, just, just myself. You guys tracking with me so far? All right. And so the peace uh, can only come through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So he and his work is the entire grounds for us to have peace with God. In fact, Jesus, according to Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, is our peace. He is our peace. So uh, I want us to think, though, uh, let me ask you this question. Does the Bible ever say that we will have peace with Satan? No. Does the Bible ever say that we will have peace with the world? No. Does the Bible ever say that we will have peace with our flesh? No. Does the Bible ever say that we will have peace with sin? No. What do we have peace with through Christ? God. That's right. Through Christ, we can have peace with God. But there's a scary thing here. There's this very, very, very scary thing in our culture. There are some Christians that are tempted to believe that the battle against God is almost a better place to be in, and that is a very dangerous and damnable lie that people believe. I mean, I believe it was Charles Spurgeon who said that I'm delighted to find that the sin stings the Christian. I'm delighted to find that the Christian hates sin more than what he did prior. And for me, I guess the easiest thing that I would explain of what Paul is trying to say here is that a sin-hating soul is a God-loving soul. Amen? A sin-hating soul is a God-loving soul. And Paul said that in because of that, it is into this grace that we stand. It is into this grace that we stand. And so the second benefit right out of the gate from, from what Paul is saying from, from justification is peace and grace. So peace with God and then a grace in which we stand. Yes. Sure. I think I finally got it though. There are those that believe that their separate comes from God. Correct. Correct. Yes, there are those who believe that their suffering comes from God. Correct. Yes. And so well, let me ask you this. Can someone give me a, a very um, simplistic version of what grace is? What is grace? Yeah, go ahead. Correct. Yeah, Amy, you want to add to that? Huh. Okay. Yeah. So what if he's Jonah? <laughs> I was just sorry. I I had I'm sorry. I had to. I had to. Uh, I was I was I will give you a three word answer to what grace is. God's unmerited favor. God's unmerited 
favor. Grace is given through Christ and it's gained by faith. And so grace, so God's unmerited or undeserved favor is not only the way of salvation that comes to us, but it's also our description of our standing before God. I'm going to explain what I mean by that. I would say that grace is not only the beginning uh, uh, principle of the Christian life, I would say that it's also the continuing principle of the Christian life. Grace. Uh, Many Christians begin in grace, okay? But then they think they must go into perfection or maturity to God through the law And then they turn to this idea of some sort of earning merited favor or unmerited favor by God. And Paul spoke very harshly against our earning of something. It was unmerited. It was given without any repercussions because of what we had done. If we go and reread Galatians chapter 3, if we read Galatians chapter 5, Those are two places in which Paul told the church at Galatia that very thought is that this has nothing to do with you. This is all of God. It is a free gift, but it has nothing to do with you. But our standing, though, our standing in grace reassures us that God's present attitude towards us is one of favor. Did you guys catch that? Our standing in grace reassures us that God's present attitude towards us is one of favor. It's one of favor. It means that when he sees us, he sees joy, and he sees beauty, and he sees pleasure. Why is that? Right, because he sees Jesus, because he sees his son. Listen, My standing in grace and your standing in grace means that I don't have to prove that I'm worthy. Amen? We don't have to prove that we're worthy. It means that God is my friend. It means that the door of access to God is permanently open for me. That's what my standing in grace does. My standing in grace says that I am free of the quote-unquote human score sheet. I'm free of it. My account has been settled through Jesus Christ's sacrifice. My my standing in grace means that I spend more time praising God and less time hating myself. Ooh, that's a hard one. Would you guys agree? My standing in grace means that I believe and consent to being loved while unworthy. And that's probably one of the greatest secrets that I would, I would maybe say one of the greatest secrets of the Christian life is that I consent to being loved while I'm unworthy. But what about my, my standing in grace is, is to, to receive blessing though realizing more and more that I lack worth before God. And yet he still gives me, he still gives me blessing. It's to testify of God's goodness all the time. It's to be certain of God's future favor, yet to be ever more tender in consciousness towards him. It's to rely, and this is probably one of the hardest ones 
in my, my opinion, uh, my standing in grace is to rely upon God's chastening hand as a mark of his kindness. Now, I struggled for so long in Hebrews um, where he said that God chastens those that he loves. In fact, he goes on to say that you are not of God if you are not chastened by him. You're not of God, meaning you're not a son of God, meaning you're not a part of his family unless you are chastened by him. And so uh, a man under grace like Paul has no burdens regarding himself but of everybody else. And so he's like, I want people to know that I have a standing in grace and through Christ uh, being justified, we have a standing in grace as well, which means that our access into that grace is only by faith in Jesus Christ. And we, we read these passages of scripture and, and I can't help but think how there are some Churches that, that talk heavily uh, upon a works-based salvation. When we see very clearly in Scripture that, that salvation comes through Christ alone, there is nothing that we can work out for ourselves in our standing of grace. It's, huh? Period. Yes, that's it. It is only, only through Christ. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> so... Discipline would be a great word to use. So then, let, sure. Sure. Are you asking if God's chastening is God's punishment? Through suffering. So where does suffering come from? That's one aspect. So where someone tell me where suffering comes from. Okay? Sin is one aspect. Okay? So we live in a sin-fallen world. So some suffering comes because of the sins of other people. Some suffering comes because of the sins of ourselves. Yeah, right. Disobedience. Where are you going to add to that? Sure. And then that that was the final piece. Yeah. That was going to be the last piece. I would say the chastening of the Lord is used in our sanctification process. Well, let me just put it this way. I couldn't stand up here and say that all chastening of the Lord is due to our sin or due to the sin of somebody else. I wouldn't be able to blanket statement that because it, it, it would be impossible for me to do that. Now, and it's not like I can't stand here and say, oh, well, the reason that, you know, they lost this and they're walking through it because they're living in sin. Um, I, I, I wouldn't be able to say that because I'm not God. Um, 
so I don't. Yeah, go ahead. Sure. Paul asked multiple times to have the thorn removed, and though we don't know, and there's been much speculation as to what that thorn was, some theologians believe it was Paul's sinfulness. Uh, it was something that he wrestled with. I mean, if we, we're going to get to Romans chapter 7 here in the next couple of weeks, and there's a point where Paul talks about how he, he, his spirit and his flesh are constantly warring. And so there are some theologians that believe there was some, some sin in Paul's life uh, that is what he constantly prayed, like, I don't want this anymore. I don't want to be this. But then others believe that there was some physical pain, some physical ailment that never went away, and it was constantly there. Um, and there's, to be honest with you, I don't even want to speculate because there's not enough scriptural evidence for me to point one way or the other. Do I believe Paul was a sinful man? Well, yes, because we're all sinners. Do, do I know that Paul walked through probably some of the most horrific physical pain out of anyone in the New Testament? Yeah, I mean, he was stoned and beaten nine times, nine different times. And so, I mean, Christ only was beaten once. And I'm not saying that Paul is better than Christ. What I'm saying is that he, he endured great physical pain. He was bitten by poisonous snakes. He was shipwrecked multiple times. He was left stranded on island. Like, Paul went through intense pain. He did. And yet he's sitting here, and, and in just a minute, though, we're going to look at that, and Paul says that suffering produces this and produces that, and produ right? And so this is coming from a man who endured great, great pain. And so our access isn't just a standing of grace, but it's the very, it, it's the very courts of heaven that we should see when we hear our access to it. And I want you to understand, does there anyone have a version of the Bible that uses a different word than access here? That our, we have access in verse number two, I believe. Yeah, verse number two, through him we have also obtained access. Yeah. So that word access, um, that word access comes from the Greek word prosagagi. And it means, in our English word, access, but it means permanent admission and audience with God. So what Paul is saying, we have obtained permanent admission into the courts of heaven, is what Paul is saying. I have, I have, contained, or I have obtained permanent audience with God. Permanent audience. Meaning multiple things for us as believers. One means that we are able to access the throne of grace on our own. Uh, we do not have to go to a, a priest uh, or a priestess to access God or to pray to God. That was one benefit of what Paul was saying. Uh, following the, the um, veil being torn post-resurrection. And so... Um, the, the biggest thing here, like because of our standing, because it's based on grace, we can stand and we can have peace because we know that our access is a permanent possession of us as believers. Now, I want you to, to know something. This, um, and I don't have time to get too deep into, into this topic but this is one of the verses that is oftentimes misquoted and misused and abused uh, talking about whether someone can lose or can't lose their salvation. 
Now, Paul is saying the one who has been saved by grace has permanent access to God. Now, he's talking about the one who has been justified. I'm not talking about the one who said that they're a Christian or said that they prayed some prayer uh, typically labeled the sinner's prayer that's not found in the Bible, just so you guys are all aware of that. The sinner's prayer is nowhere in the Bible. Um, and if, if just because someone says that they're a Christian or labels themselves as a Christian, uh, there are multiple things that we could talk about when it comes to whether or not someone can lose their salvation. But what Paul is saying here is a genuine repentance that has led to justification, permanent access to God cannot be taken away from that person. It's exactly what Paul is saying. He's saying that the access to God or the introduction to the divine presence is a, a, a privilege that is lasting or should be considered lasting in our lives. And we're not brought to God. Now, I want you to please don't miss this. We are not brought to God for some interview and then we're going to be sent away. Okay? Well, we are brought to God to remain in Him until eternity. Until eternity. And so to say, and then like I said, I don't have the time to unpack uh, whether or not salvation can be lost. And I don't have time to unpack apostasy or, or the, the rejection of what you once believed and you've turned away from. I don't have time to unpack all those things. And so if you want to have a conversation about it, just come and see me afterwards. But this is what Paul is saying here. And that the, the words that he used were permanent admission permanent audience with God. And so he says, because of that, because of that, he says, we should rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We should rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, this, to me, is probably the most logical conclusion um, to such peace and such standing of grace. We should rejoice in hope. Would you guys agree with me? Like, to grace and peace, we should rejoice in hope because of the glory of God. But when we relate to God on the principle of works, okay? When we relate to God on the principle of works, any rejoicing becomes presumptuous, and any imagined glory ends up coming to us and not to God. And so rejoice is typically the word that's translated as boast, is, is typically what we would see. But here it means a triumphant confidence. A triumphant confidence. Meaning that all of this, all of this, I am confident in my standing before God because of his grace and justification. Because of peace and hope. I'm confident of where I stand. So if we're not justified by grace through faith, then we have no peace with God. We have no hope of this life. We have no present standing of grace for us. Yes. So if you have, when you have that, it's still your body. But not your soul. Yes. When you have, when you have an understanding of your standing, they can kill your body but can't kill your soul. And so look at the promise, though, that comes starting in verse number 3. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame 
because God's love has poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so Paul anticipates the, the accusation of the people that he has this too um, high pie-in-the-sky type mentality about God's justification and that the glory of the Christian is somehow only intended for heaven. And so Paul's like, well, I'm going to just stop us right there. And he says, I know we have many tribulations now, but we glory in those tribulations. We glory in that suffering right here, right now. Paul's not giving us some, some spiritual platitude for the Christian life. He's using very strong words. The, the strongest word that he could lose or use sorry, about suffering is the word tribulation. It's the word tribulation. Why? Because that, that term means hardship, real hardship. It doesn't mean some minor inconvenience in one's life. It means real hardship. But Paul, Paul lived a life of tribulation. From the moment that he stepped onto the road to Damascus, he endured hardship. He went blind for months following his encounter with God. The apostles rejected Paul. When he went to city after city, he was thrown in jail. He was beaten. He was stoned. I mean, we've talked about this. Paul endured hardship and tribulation, but he knew the truth of this very thought better than anybody, that we can glory in tribulation. We can glory in real hardship. We can glory in stresses, in literal stresses, Meaning that they in, in us produce endurance, or some versions say perseverance. They pro it produces perseverance or endurance in the Christian's life. I, I tried to think of, of some things to, uh, some examples to maybe help us understand this thought a little bit better. And I, I couldn't think of much except for um, these few things. My son... Um, is about to be 13 years old, and he uh, is a cross-country runner. Um, he ran last year, was his first year, and I remember, I remember when he got invited to come out to conditioning, and I started talking to the coaches on his very first day of conditioning, and they were telling us that each day of conditioning, they had to run on average four to five miles. I'm like, my kid's not going to make it. He's not. He's not going to make it. Um, he's not, um, I'm, I'm expecting to leave and come home in an hour and a half at the end of this practice, and he's going to tell my wife and I, I'm never going back. But he gets in the car with more enthusiasm than what he had when he left. And I said, how'd it go, buddy? And he goes, it was awesome! And I was like, why? <laughs> and he goes, well, he's like, because I get to do something that's pushing me to be better. And so I thought about that. And on the way, it's a three-minute drive from, his, from where he runs for to our home. And I began to think and think and think and think for months. And I was like, I got, there's a sermon in there somewhere. I'm always thinking about stories that people bring up. Or I'm always thinking about opportunities that I've been able to walk through. And I'm like, there's a sermon in there. There's an illustration in there somewhere. And I began to think about what he said to me. 
He's like, well, it's pushing me to be better. It's pushing me. And I thought the runner, it doesn't matter if it's cross country or track, they have to go through stress in order to gain endurance so that by the time their first meet comes, by the time regionals come, by the time state comes, they've built up enough endurance to breathe through three and a half miles and keep going. They've built up enough endurance that if they get a cramp, they can push through the cramp. They've built up enough where they can breathe super fast for long periods of time and not become winded. So then I thought, well, who else has to go through stress in order to gain endurance? And then I thought about Navy SEALs. SEALs have to go through the most intense training in order to get them prepared for what they will be asked to do. Soldiers will go into battle, but they have to prepare for the stresses of battle so they can endure war. They can endure hardship. They can endure heat. For the Christian, the tribulation is a part of our life that causes us to endure this life to prepare us for the next. To prepare us for the next. Yeah, go ahead. Sure. Yes. Oh, stress is, I, I would agree with that. Persecution or tribulation is needed in the life. And I was about to say this very thing, that we as, as Christians should not desire or hope to have a tribulation-free life. Why? Because God uses tribulation wonderfully in the life of a believer. God, God knows at the same time he uses it, but at the same time, he knows exactly how much tribulation we can each take. He knows it. And he carefully measures the tribulation that he gives. Now, I want to just stop right here before we go. And I'll, give me just a second and I'll let you speak. I want to just stop right here because there is a mentality and a thought process that is rampant in our culture right now that says, God won't give me more than I can handle. That's unbiblical. That's very unbiblical. Uh, God will give you more than you can handle because he wants to drive you closer to himself. Um, he will drive you closer to him through that tribulation. And so when I say God knows how much tribulation to give to us, what I'm saying is that all tribulation passes through the hands of the Father before it even gets to us. And so he already knows what's coming our way. And so, yeah, go ahead. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. But I also, I want to throw this out there too. Non-believers also go through tribulation. I just want to put that, because the, the, worst, the worst thing that we could do is sit here as Christians and think we're the only ones that suffer. Because non-believers suffer too. And, you know, I, I've heard, I've heard people advise, and I'm going to make a statement, and if you want to wring my neck later, that's fine. 
I've heard people in Christian circles advise other people against praying for patience. Because God will then send them some trial to make them more patient. And if that's the way, and I just, I just want to stop for a moment. Because we chuckle at that thought because we're like, hey, we've probably said that. Or, hey, we've heard somebody else say that. But this is, this is what my thought is. And I'll tell you why. If that's the way that patience comes, then we should say humbly, okay, God, bring that on. Bring that into my life. Because we all need a little bit more patience, don't we? I mean, like whatever virtues that tribulation finds us in, it will develop more fully following that tribulation. You guys ever found that in your life? Maybe you're struggling with a specific aspect and then you began to walk through a storm and something changed on the outside of that storm. You grew in some way in your relationship with God or in your relationship with somebody else. Maybe your marriage was on the rocks and you walked through a horrendous storm and on the outside it's stronger. Maybe you lost trust with somebody and it got built back up through the process of a storm and then you trusted more after. Or maybe there was some pain or some physical ailment that you walked through and it caused you to trust God more. Don't you think that that pain and that trial and that suffering was worth it? Was it worth it? I asked myself probably about two months ago. I was in a, I was in a very, very, very low place. And I felt like I couldn't get out of the pit. I felt like it was dark. I felt like it was very dry. And my wife so graciously put her arm around me one night. And she said to me, "Hun, when was the last time you said, thank you God for what you've put me through? Thank you, God, for letting me walk through this pain. Thank you, God, for letting me learn through this process. And I looked at my wife, and in my flesh, I wanted to scream with everything in me because I wanted to be like, you don't know what I'm doing, right? And that's typically the response. You don't know. You don't understand. But God was using my wife to say, give thanks in all things. Give thanks in, all, not for all things, but in all things. Man, Paul himself is the one who said that. And I, I wonder, no, I, I don't wonder, I know. I know that the one who is carnal, the one who is weak and blind and wicked and erasable and, and haughty and, and so forth, tribulation will make that person more carnal. It will make that person more weak. It will make that person more blind and wicked. But on the other hand, the, the, the spiritually strong one, the one who is wise in truth, the one who is pious and, and gentle and humble, through his tribulation or her tribulation, they become more spiritual. They become more humble. They become more gentle. Why? Because perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. 
And if we, if we trust in the word of God, we have to trust that God's word says to us that our sufferings will produce something better in us. Our suffering will produce uh, more godly fruit out of it. If we go back and read John chapter 15, Jesus himself said that my pruning, my, your abiding in me and my pruning produces fruit. And then a few verses later, it, he says it produces more fruit. And then at the end, he says it produces much fruit. So to be abiding in Christ, to allow for tribulation, to allow for chastening, to allow for suffering, my character is going to continue to produce more and then much godly fruit. Yeah, go ahead. Right, James, James says right out of the gate, count it all joy, my brethren. When you endure hardship, count it all joy. And I never understood that. Like, how can you count hardship joy? Well, then you sit here and you're looking, you're like, we can. Because it produces, it produces endurance and character and hope in one's life. Yeah, go ahead. I, I wholeheartedly believe that, yes. The, why? Because we're giving something up in our lives. We're, we're, we're saying no to the flesh to press in to God. And so, yeah, absolutely. If you are physically able, and I'm, and I'm not saying, please, if you are physically able, um, you should take time at some point to fast and seek the Lord. Um, even if you're not asking for a specific answer, to something. We shouldn't just fast because we need an answer to a problem. But if we are fasting, it's to give us a deeper understanding of God and a deeper relationship, more intimacy with Him. Now, if you physically can, it's not like you're going to get to heaven and be like, I can't believe you didn't fast. You're going to hell now. Okay, that's not going to happen. Okay, so I know some of you physically would not be able to do that for long periods of time, but we can fast specific, we can fast our cell phone. We can fast our TV and our internet. We can, we can fast going out to dinner one night. We, I mean, there are lots of things that we can fast and spend that time that you would have used in those ways seeking God, praying to God. Now, the, yeah, go ahead. Was someone going to say something? I saw a hand. Okay. The, the perseverance in producing of character and character producing hope is what I would call the golden chain of Christian growth and maturity. Why? Because one virtue builds upon the other and they grow in the pattern of Jesus. You know, most, most every Christian wants to develop character and have more hope. Would you guys agree with that? You want to develop more character. You want to have more hope. These qualities spring out of perseverance, which comes through tribulation. And so um, I, I would rather, and I don't know how many of you are in this boat, I would rather have God just sprinkle some perseverance and some character and some hope on me in my sleep. So that when I wake up, I'm a better Christian. 
Like, would anybody else in that boat? Like, God, can't you just, right? And, and it, to be honest with you, it's, oh, it's one of those mentalities that we have in our culture. We live in a microwave mentality. We want it right now. I used to tell our teenagers of our youth group in Florida that we live in a microwave mentality um, where we just want to get on uh, holyscripture.com like we do on Amazon and order these three things and it just gets shipped to us in 48 hours and then we're good to go. And then, and then we get angry with God because we read our Bible for two days and nothing changed in our life. Anybody else with me? Like, come on. Like, that's how, we, that's how our culture is. And, and the beauty, though, of God's word is he says you're going to endure suffering. And when you endure that suffering, these things are produced in you. Perseverance, hope. That life change comes because of the trial, because of the tribulation. Like, God's plan for me, God's plan for the Christian is not to just sprinkle those things on us when we sleep. That's, that's not what it says. And like I said earlier, we honestly should be in a place where we soberly and reverently say, okay, Lord, bring, bring it to me so I can be more like you. Bring it to me so I can be more like you. You know, I, I love the fact that God loves me enough and he carefully measures every trial because he has a loving purpose for my life. He has a loving purpose for everything in my life and I don't want to seek trials and I don't want to search out tribulation, but I shouldn't despise them or lose hope when they come. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yes. Did you guys hear what he said? Go ahead. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, I mean our our you're you're absolutely right. Our reward is not always going to be found 
here on this earth. There's a song that we used to sing when I was a child that said, And there's a crown and you can win it if you go in Jesus' name. And the song talked about over and over and over, it doesn't matter what season of life you're in. It doesn't matter where you're headed. It doesn't matter if you're on the mission field. It doesn't matter if you're going through a heartache or a trial. If you go in Jesus' name, there's a crown. And, and as a child, I was like, man, my crowns better look nice when I get to, <laughs> right? And, and, then, and then, of course, then going through the book of Revelation and, and discussing the crowns that come to us as, as his children, uh, that, is a, that is a thought. Our, our reward will not always be seen here in the temporal and who, I mean, if we honestly think about it, who would rather choose a temporal reward now or an eternal reward then? Just don't, don't incriminate yourself, but just think about it. Would you rather a temporal, a temporal gift now, a reward now, or an eternal one? And would heaven still be enough if you got there and you didn't have a crown? I'm just saying. I did. I did. Hardcore in that. Hardcore I pounded that it wasn't a real. But I'm just, but honestly, honestly, just, just thinking about it. Would, would heaven still be enough if there was no reward for you? In heaven. Would heaven still be enough if you got there and there was no extra reward? There was no, would it still be enough? I see hands all over the place. You don't have to answer the question. I'm just, it's a question for us to ponder. It's a question for us to, would heaven still be enough? I think Sunday, if you guys missed the sermon on Sunday, go back and listen to it. I talked, I talked very briefly about heaven and how we all long for heaven for different reason, reasons, whether it's seeing family members that have gone on or walking on the streets of gold or seeing the pearly gates, but those things don't make heaven heaven. Standing in the presence of our creator is what makes heaven heaven. And so would heaven still be enough if you got there and the only thing that was there was the presence of God? But I love what Paul said. Paul said, hope doesn't disappoint. Hope does not disappoint. And that hope that tribulation builds in us is not a hope that will disappoint us. Meaning that we're assured of that because God has proved his intentions to complete his work in us. I love what Paul said in the book of Philippians chapter 2 verse 1. He who began a good work will see it through to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. So whatever God has started in us, he sees it all the way through until the very end. And every Christian should have some experience of that thought in their life. They should have some, some deep inner awareness of how much God has given grace and mercy and love to you. Every, every Christian. And, and Paul's logical argument in Romans, his, his logical arguments, they are devastating. But the book of Romans does not lack emotion or, or passionate experience with God. Paul wants us to think the right thoughts about God, but he also wants us to have the right experiences with God. 
That's why Paul says the things that he does. I mean, God's love isn't given to us in a trickle. Paul said it is poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And so some Christians, and I'm not not pointing fingers here, but there are some Christians who live as if God's love is only trickled out upon us. But God, God's love, Paul says, is an outpouring upon our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And it was given to us. So that's how God communicates his love to us, through the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit. And a, and a lack of awareness of God's love can often be credited to a failure of, being con- of, of not being constantly filled with the Holy Spirit. A lack of awareness of God's love is, is, is the failure to walk in the Spirit, as Paul talked about in Galatians chapter 5. Do you know, um, the Bible tells us that every Christian has been given the Holy Spirit from the moment of salvation. We know that, right? Right? You guys nod your head if you know that. The Bible tells us that every Christian has been given the Holy Spirit from the moment of salvation, okay? But I'm just going to throw this out there. Not every Christian lives in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Not every Christian lives in the fullness. And not every Christian walks in the Spirit either. I, I believe that there are those who um, still walk in what I would call self-condemnation from their sin, believing that God's forgiveness is not enough to save them, though they've prayed for salvation. Um, I also believe that there are, there are people that don't believe that the Holy Spirit still moves either. And there are two, those are two main reasons why a believer uh, does not go further in their walk with Jesus Christ. And yeah, go ahead. Absolutely. I would definitely agree. How many of you have ever been in that category before? There have been moments in, or seasons of your life where you were constantly in step with the Spirit, and then there were seasons of your life where you felt like every other day was a moral failure. All three of you. Great. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And when we get into the next three chapters of Romans, we're going to begin to look at the struggle uh, between the flesh and the spirit and what Paul says to us about that and how, how do we overcome that, right? How many of you know, by just showing your hands, how many of you know that through, through the power of the Holy Spirit, um, bondage to sin can be broken off in our lives? Right. But how many of you also know that your flesh is right here and it does not stray far from you? How many of you know that it takes one moment and you're walking into left field off the path and you're covered in icky filth? Right. Right. But there is a, there is a love and a grace and a mercy that has been given to us in this life by God. What did, what did we talk about a couple of week, weeks ago about God's forbearance? How God is, is long-suffering with our future sin until he returns. 
there's still grace that is given. Um, but that does not give us liberty or permission to continue sinning. Amen? Amen? Okay, just wanted to make sure we're, we're all tracking on the same page here. So look with, yeah, go ahead. And then we're going to turn to verse number six. Yeah. Why do I do the things that I hate? Yeah. You should read it in the Greek. It's awful. So look with me at verse number six. Verse number six. It says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, sorry, for, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even die. But God showed his love or demonstrated his love, depending on your version, for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so Paul's description of the greatness of God's love is to say that love is given to the undeserving, to those without strength, to the ungodly and the sinner. And so this emphasis emphasizes the fact that the reason for God's love is found in him and it cannot be found in us. So let me just ask you this question, um, just to make sure we're all good. This is not a trick question, but who are the ungodly and wicked people that Jesus died for? Us. It is us. Paul spent the first two and a half chapters of the book of Romans telling us that all people are the reason why God sent his son to the cross. And it may have seemed, in some perspectives, as though Jesus' work was late, but it was done at the perfect time in God's plan. Do you know in Galatians chapter 4, Paul said that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son? When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Meaning that at that moment when Christ came, the world was prepared enough where God wanted them spiritually, economically, linguistically, politically, philosophically, and geographically for the coming of Jesus Christ. It was exactly his appointed time. And that was the perfect time for Christ to come and for the gospel to then go forth from that moment forward. And it says that Christ died for the ungodly, that he died for the ungodly. Listen, Paul mentioned very briefly in Romans chapter 3, verse 24 or 25, he mentioned the idea for the first time of substitutionary sacrifice. It's a theological term that means um, that Christ paid the penalty for our sins, or in some versions we read that big churchy word propitiation. You guys remember that? Right. That is where we get the doctrine or theology of substitutionary sacrifice. And God's, it means that God's love is a love beyond even the best love amongst humans. And it was given to us. And listen, I have thought, I've thought for a long time, like, a good man could die for a good cause. Would you guys agree with that? A good woman could die for a good cause. For the right kind of cause. 
But he said, he said, but would a man, a righteous man die? Would a righteous man die? And he was saying, a good man in Jesus Christ came to die. And he died for those who were neither righteous nor good. He came to die for the ungodly and the wicked. And so let me ask you this question. How does the death of Jesus Christ demonstrate God's love? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Could you elaborate? I'm not a believer, and I need, I need you to explain it to me. Sure. It's all all action. It, love, yes, it was an action. Does anyone else want to add to that? The reason, listen, I just want, before anybody else answers, the reason why I ask some of these questions are because these are questions that I've encountered from non-believers. And so I ask the question to ensure that we could appropriately answer that question, may it ever arise uh, in any conversation. And so why, why, is Jesus' death on the cross a demonstration of God's love? How? How is that? Yes. Yeah, go ahead, Laura. Mm. Yeah, go ahead. Do you have something you want to add? I saw your hand. Sure. Sure. The only thing I would maybe say differently, I would probably never use the term free will along to alongside of God's choice. I would I probably would never use that terminology because that's, I don't have time to break it down, but I wouldn't use that, that terminology, free will. Ter, the terminology free will is a man-made thought about what occurs 
in the Bible and how we were created. God is a sovereign God that knows all things and knows how they will come to pass. And so I would not say that, that God's free will is over our free will because at that point then, then you're saying that man doesn't have a choice. And then you begin to argue the very fine lines uh, of predestination and the very fine lines of election which are doctrines that are used to destroy truths in the Bible and not un- undergird them. Yeah, and then K. That was in, it was in Philippians. Yep. Right, to become a servant unto death. Yeah. Well, sure. Sure. Yes, Miss Kay. Yeah, the, the cross was the ultimate demonstration of God's love. And, and it's the all, but, and, and I love the explanation because in our humanness, I, I don't know that there is a human being that would say, oh, I'll do that. I'd give up my kid. Like, I, I honestly don't. Um, I've never met one, at least. And, and if they said that to me to my face, I would probably be thinking, they're a liar. <laughs> it, like, I mean, just being honest. Just being honest, okay, but it, right, right, I mean, absolutely, so the cross, though, and I I don't want us to miss this, the cross is the ultimate demonstration of God's love, but it's also the ultimate demonstration of man's hatred at the same time. The cross was a demonstration of man's hatred. It proved that the height of man's hatred could not defeat the height of God's love. And that demonstration of God's love isn't displayed so much in that Jesus died, but it's seen in whom Jesus died for, the ungodly. Jesus died for the undeserving the, the sinner, the one who rebelled against him. So look now at verse number 9, and let's try to get a little bit further in this chapter. And it says, Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now, if we are justified by the work of Jesus Christ, we can be assured that we are also saved from God's wrath through Jesus. Why? Why can we be assured that we're saved from God's wrath? God. Yes, 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 we, because of the blood of Christ, we are saved from the wrath of God. Listen, the wrath of God 
was, according to Romans 1, right? We already we addressed this, but the wrath of God was revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And so that was placed upon Jesus as he was our substitute on the cross. So, is it true that we must be saved from the world? Yes. Is it true that we must be saved from our flesh? Is it true that we must be saved from Satan and hell? Yes, but most of all, we have to be rescued from the righteous wrath of God. Most of all. And if God showed such a dramatic love to us when we were enemies, Paul said, think of the blessing that we will enjoy once we are in the presence of God. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, the wrath of God is upon the one who does not accept the free gift of salvation. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, first John chapter 1, the one who says he is without sin is a liar. Or he's not of God. Yeah, go ahead. I'm actually going to talk about the, the two men, Adam and Christ. Um, and in this chapter, we're going to talk about their, their partnership, so to speak, uh, extensively. And, and I don't know that we're going to make it there tonight because we only have about 20 minutes. But, uh, yeah, let's keep moving because I will, I will address that, those very thoughts. So the, the reconciliation that we see isn't only helpful when we die, but it also touches our life right now here on this earth. And God is forever, but God is forever done dealing with believers on the basis of wrath uh, once we are saved and justified by his son. So uh, kind of back a little bit to our conversation from earlier, God may still chasten us as a loving father, but not in payment for our past sinfulness. You guys catch that? Not in payment for our past sinfulness. God only allows chastening to bring loving correction and guidance into the life of a believer. So look now at verse number 12, because we're going to start seeing these two men 
um, these two men. So verse number 12 says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. So let's just stop right there, and I'm going to start to unpack this. And so if you need me to repeat something or to explain something further, please stop me. Paul regarded Genesis chapter 3 as totally and historically accurate and true. He, he regarded Adam and Eve as real people and what they did he regarded as having lasting effects all the way through present day. You guys tracking with me so far? Okay. Now it's important for us to understand that Adam and Eve, the Adam and Eve account is not an optional passage that we can accept or reject or allegorize in any way, shape, or form. According to Paul's theme here, in chapter 5, you cannot take away the truth of Genesis 3 without taking away the principles that lay the foundation for salvation. You can't. And so to Paul, Adam was more than just a historical individual. To Paul, Adam was the first man. But to Paul, he was also what his Hebrew name means, humanity. Adam's name in Hebrew means humanity. And so the whole of humanity is viewed as having existed first in Adam. Did you guys tracking with me so far? Yes, yes. And he said, through one man, sin entered the world. Now, Paul does not prove that point. He simply accepts that truth from Genesis chapter 3, that sin entered the world through Adam. Now, significantly, though, Adam is responsible, and this is where I've heard all manner of preaching on Adam and Eve. Adam is responsible for the fall of the human race, not Eve. Okay, there's been an argument for some time. Well, Eve's the one who took the, the fruit first, and Eve's the one who gave it to Adam. Listen, Adam is responsible for the fall of mankind. Why? Eve, in Genesis, in Genesis Eve was deceived before she sinned. Adam sinned with full knowledge. Well, how do you know that, Pastor? How do you know that Adam sinned with full knowledge? Go read 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. It says, and I quote, Eve sinned following the deception. Okay? Some versions word, word this a little bit differently. But Adam did not. Meaning that Adam already knew. Now, if you go back to Genesis chapter 2 and read, I think it's verse 17 in Genesis chapter 2, um, you will see that God says, in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God was talking to Adam before Eve ever existed. 
She was not even on the picture yet in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 17. She didn't come onto the scene until a few verses later. And so Adam is responsible for the the fall of the human race. Why? Because he sinned with full knowledge, knowing what he was doing. He was not deceived by Satan. He was not deceived by his wife. He fully understood. And so the principle of death was introduced in the world when Adam sinned and it rained on the earth ever since. And so every grave, every grave is mute evidence to the spread and the reign of sin since the time of Adam. Since the time of of Adam, the beginning. And since death and sin are connected, we can know that all men are sinners because all are subject to death. Everybody. And so that sounds odd, a little, would you guys agree it sounds a little odd to our individualistic ears? Like, Paul clearly teach that all man sinned through Adam or because of Adam. And so Adam is the common father of every person on earth and every human who has ever lived is in Adam's genetic makeup. Every person. And so mankind actually sinned in Adam. So I'm going to try and explain this a little bit greater to you. So humans are mortal beings, meaning that they will die, okay? And humans are subject to death before they commit any sin in and of themselves. You guys tracking with me so far? You are subject to death because of sin before you commit any sin in and of yourself. And since mortality, since death is the result of sin, it shows that we are made sinners by Adam's sin. You guys tracking so far? Okay, just nod your head. If not, just say, I need to talk to you. Okay? So we are made sinners by Adam's sin, not by our own personal sin. So, you guys good? Okay. Now, we may not like that fact that we are made sinners by the work of another man. Would you guys agree with me? I mean, if you're honest, I'm made sinner because Adam, because Adam. I'm a sinner because, and we may protest. We may even say or have thought at some point in this life, well, why can't I stand on my own two feet and not be made a sinner because of the work of another person? Yeah. Well, I'm going to address that in a minute too. So if it's fair to be made righteous by the work of another man, it is fair to be made sinner by the work of another man. And if we aren't made sinners by Adam, then it is not fair for us to be made righteous by Christ. It's not. And that truth is kind of uncomfortable. I mean, if you, if you think of and grasp the brevity of that truth, it's uncomfortable, but it's still true. The smallest, and this is the hardest part uh, for some, and, and I struggled with this for a long time. The smallest baby is a sinner and subject to death. The smallest baby. I mean, David himself even understood that when he said in Psalm 51, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And I was a sinner in my mother's womb. I just, I struggled for so long with that thought that 
that even the smallest of babies is a sinner. And then I had my own children. I mean, I, I didn't have them. My wife did. but And I thought, as our, our children started to get a little bit older, and they started walking, and they started talking, and crawling, and breaking everything. And I thought to myself, I didn't have to teach my kids how to be selfish. I didn't have to teach them how to be angry. I did not have to teach them how to do bad things. They learned that on their own. Why? Because of sin. Because of sin. Yeah. Did you read my notes? That's literally my next line on my notes. So if babies are sinners, does that mean that they go to heaven or hell? So someone explain to me why. Okay. But there's something, there's, there's two specific reasons from scripture that we know. Go ahead and then go ahead and then go ahead. Did you read my notes? Because that's my next line. Yes. Hold on. I'm going to cover this. Go ahead. Did you have something you wanted to add to what they were going to say? So 1 Corinthians chapter 7 says that children of believers are sanctified by the presence of a believing parent. Okay. But, huh? Yes. I'll, I'll address that in just a moment. So David, I'm going to give you another thing. David, after having lost his child with Bathsheba, had assurance from God that he would meet that child in heaven from 2 Samuel chapter 12. Now we also know that in the end of all things, God, the judge of the entire world, will do what is right. No matter what the answer would be, God would do what is right. So what about the children of unbelieving parents? Are they in heaven? Well, it's important for us to understand that even unbelievers' children are not innocent. Okay? They're not innocent. And as sons and daughters of guilty Adam, we are all born guilty as well. And so if, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say if, okay, and I'm not, not, this is not to stir up controversy, but if children go to heaven, it is not because they are innocent and they deserve to go to heaven. It is because of the great and rich mercy of God that he's extended to them because they have no knowledge. And the reason why I say if, because then the question is then posed, well, what about those who don't hear? And then we get into the cycle of what we learned in chapter 1 and chapter 2. And I, I knew you were going to go here. Chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Romans that says man is without excuse to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, I will say, children of believers are sanctified because of the presence of a believing parent. 
And David have, had assurance that he was going to see his child in heaven. But there is nothing in scripture that clearly states unbelievers' children. As in those who are not, who are not believers. I cannot tell you for sure. Yep, go ahead and then. So that, yes, yeah, so that teaching came out of, out of the Old Testament and the, the most clear place in the Gospels that we see it is with Zacchaeus. When Christ goes into Zacchaeus' house, he said, salvation has come to you and your house. Um, would be the, the clearest picture of that, uh, that belief, that thought. Go ahead. but then you just completely missed the point of what I just said, that in Adam, everyone is born guilty. So if you, could, if you could give me a verse that said an unbeliever child goes to heaven, then I would stand here with certainty and tell you an unbeliever child goes to heaven. So then you would take the argument that man is without excuse and that if that's the case, then Paul lied to us. Sure. Sure. So then I would... I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not trying to sit here and, and tell you that children are not going to be in heaven. That's not what I'm doing. What I'm saying is, as your pastor, I'm not, gonna call, I'm not going to bring my conjecture to what we have in Scripture. Why? Because that's unbiblical. I'm, I'm saying as your pastor, I'm not going to stand here and give you 100% surety where there is none. Like I, I can't, I can't do that. To, I cannot stand up here because I, I will be judged harshly when I'm standing before God as your pastor if I have mishandled the Word of God. Correct. But but then I mean, and, and I'm going to play devil's advocate for a minute because it's my favorite thing to do. If if that were the case. And this is a big if. If unbelievers' children did not go to heaven, would God still be good? Right. But would we still live like God is good if that were the case? Because this, this whole thing, we cannot grasp all of God's knowledge in our finite mind. We would not be able to handle it. So there's, there's a difference between being inquisitory to learn and in our flesh accusing God of something. And I'm not saying that's what you're doing, but what I'm saying is we have to be cautious. 
or to be cautious of accusing God of doing something that would be in our humanness of ill repute. What were you going to say, Tim? Yeah, I mean, there's no way for us to be because my age of accountability could be different than Miss Kay's age of accountability, and it could be different than Fanandre's age of accountability. But who am I to decide that age? Who are you to decide that age? We can't. Why? Because we're not God. And a lot of people are probably grateful that we are not God. <laughs> Just throwing yes and then yes. Verse 13 of this chapter. Okay. Correct. That's my next verse. I'm going to tackle real quick and then I'll let you guys get out of here. What were you going to say, Kelly? Sure. Sure. I just, I, the only reason why I said what I did is if someone came to me with that question, um, I could not 100% say with certainty, yes, the word of God tells me flat out it's, a, it's what I would call one of the very few areas, a gray areas of Scripture. So, and, and the reason why, and I'm just going to tell you this and then I'll, I'll answer your question. Um, as Christians, we should look at God's Word as black and white as possible. And the reason for that is because the more gray area that we have in Scripture, the more we have a tendency to sin the more we have a tendency to, to twist to fit our own agendas. And so when we read and study Scripture, we should see Scripture as black and white. Black and white. That's it. And so if it is not clearly laid out one way or the other, we should never, ever add conjecture to it. It's not clearly laid out. So I couldn't answer 100% to that question. Right, but where, right, but where, do, where do the arguments lead us to? Division. Thank you. I was glad. I was hoping arguments lead to division. Yeah. So real quick, I'm going to do verses 13 and 14, and then I'll let you guys jet, and we'll finish the rest of the chapter next week. And so, um, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So, 
we know that at the root of all, we are made sinners because of Adam and not because we broke the law ourselves. Okay? So we know this because sin and death were in the world before the law was ever given to Moses. Yes. Yep. Okay. So the law was too late to prevent sin and death, and it was too weak to save from sin and death. And so death reigned, is what Paul said. Death reigned. The total merciless reign of death before the law was given at the time of Moses proves that man was under sin before the law. They were under sin, meaning that sin was already established here, meaning that we were already destined for death and to receive the wrath of God before the law was ever given. Now, death reigned even over those who had not sinned. Okay, so in the exact way that Adam did, even if you didn't sin in that way, death still reigned over you, showing that the principle of sin was at work in every single human. Paul presented Adam as a picture or a representation of Christ. And I'll explain. Adam and Jesus were completely sinless men from the beginning. Okay? But both of them did things that had consequences for all of mankind. Adam sinned. Christ came essentially to clean up. Does that make sense? And so without going too, too much further, because the next couple of verses, he begins to talk about how the offense, because of Adam's offense, many have died and many will die. And he then begins to break down why Christ had to be the free gift for, for us. He had to lay down his life in order for us to be saved by the grace of God and that because of God's grace, it abounded to many. And so Adam's work brought death where Jesus' work brought grace. Does that make sense? Right. Yes. And the reason for that is because the reason why he said the, the, the wording that he said what he did was because the, the law, we, we can't say that we're put to death because of the law. The argument about law causing us to be put to death is not an argument because we were already under sin. We were all in sin because of Adam. Correct. And so I'm going to talk next week about how the law exaggerated, essentially, exaggerate or caused us more to sin because it drew very clear lines that in our flesh we want to break. Yeah. Are there any other questions? All right, well, it's 8.07. I don't want us to hang. I probably, we have like another 15 pages of notes on this chapter, so we'll just call it.